If you would, turn with me in your Bible to the book of Hosea. Book of Hosea, we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. If you're in the Pew Bible, that's page uh, 953. 953 in the Pew Bible. As you turn there, let me just kind of briefly uh, recap what we've seen in the first chapter of, of Hosea. Uh, God tells Hosea to marry a woman named Gomer. He calls her a wife of whoredom. Now, we talked about this last week. This could mean a couple different things. It could mean that she was actually a prostitute. It could mean that uh, she eventually would become a wife of whoredom. Uh, but regardless, he tells Hosea to marry Gomer. And he explains that he has to do this because Israel has committed adultery against God. So what we see is that he's setting up this analogy uh, to, to display the adultery of Israel. And their kids, he even names Jezreel, no mercy, and not my people, which are all names that demonstrate uh, the, the judgment of sin against Israel. And so what we're going to see in chapter 2 is that God is going to extend this analogy out even Further, and he's going to further detail that analogy. He's going to show us who he, who, who he is in the analogy. He's going to show us who we are, who Israel is, and all the parts of the analogy will, will come together as we continue to read chapter 2. And so while, while he is using analogy, I think he's using a little something more. I think this is almost kind of a way in which God uses what we call anthropomorphic language. And that's whenever, it's a big word, but that's, that's whenever God describes himself as having human features, essentially. Because we know God is a spirit, so God doesn't have a, a human physical body like we do. But he describes himself to Israel all the time by saying, I have, I'm, I have my arms outreached. Or uh, he talks about his feet, his eyes, his ears in which he hears. And, and we use it too. I mean, when we just sang, we talked about uh, God hearing us or, or something being pleasant to God, God's ears. And so we use it and God uses it so that we can better understand him and so that God can make himself personal to us. So that we don't see this God as being some distant creator, but rather we see that he is a personal God who knows us and loves us. And so that's what I think he's doing here with Hosea. He's using Hosea to say, this is how I perceive your sin. This is how I perceive what you do. And so God uses this language to show us just how personal he is and how personally his, uh, our sin is to him. And he does so to give us a big picture of sin. You know, sin is not just some abstract thing that we do against some abstract God. It is a personal thing against a personal God. And so if we see the bigness of our sin and how personal our sin is, then we can see just how personal grace is and how big grace is. And so I think we see a good picture of that here in Hosea. So let's read Hosea chapter 2 and 3. It's a little bit lengthy, so bear with me as we read it. Uh, Hosea chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sons, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, for I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also will I have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, 
I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the, for the feast days of the bells, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her rings and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And therefore, I will give her her vineyards, and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my bow. For I will remove the names of the bows from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And the Lord said to me, God again, love a woman, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver, and a homer, and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore, or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You for Your Word, but we ask for Your help this morning as we, as we go through it, dear God. We ask You to, uh, to show us, dear God, from it what You want us to, to hear from You, dear God, uh, to show us um, our, our own sin, dear God, and show us uh, how great Your love and, and mercy is for us, dear God, and, and how we... Uh, how you have made the way for us to, to have that, that mercy and, and that grace, dear God. And so we uh, praise you for your word this morning and ask that you would be with us as we go through it. I also pray in your gracious and holy name. Amen. So as we begin to dissect this passage, but before we begin, rather, I want to, to point out uh, some important things that we see as God is as dealing out this indictment to Israel or as he's talking about this punishment for Israel and what I want us to see is that this whole process that we in chapter 2, the process of God saying, this is your sin, 
the process that we see in Israel repent and, and the process of restoration, that whole thing is bookended by God's grace. It's bookended by God's grace. Notice in verse 1, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. So remember that, that not my people and no mercy were the names of Gomer's children. And those names represented Israel before God, their status with God. And so he's saying, you will have mercy, and you are my people. And then back up just a little bit to where we were last week in chapter 1, verse 10, and see where God says there. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And so God sets the stage for this whole process by the very beginning saying to Israel, you will be redeemed. You will be restored to me. Glance now me to the second bookend at the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, and the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And, I, and he shall say, you are my God. So what we see are these bookends of grace. God's promise to his people, beginning and end, that you are going to be restored. That despite their sin, despite their adultery, that they will be restored to him. And so what we, we can learn a couple things from these bookends. The first thing that we can learn is that God's grace is never in question for his people. God's grace is never in question for his people. So if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, you don't have to wonder about God's grace in your life. You don't have to wonder, is this sin forgiven? Because all sins, past, present, and future sins, have been forgiven on the basis of Jesus' atonement for our sin at the cross. And so God's grace is never in question for his people. And the second thing that we can learn just, just from these bookends at the very outset of this passage is that God faithfully pursues his people with that grace. So God's grace is never in question. It, it is endless for his people, but then also that God is pursuing his people with that grace. He is chasing after them with it. And we see this all throughout this passage and throughout the Old Testament as a whole. God's people continually turn away from him. They chase idols. They lose faith in him. They, they, they turn away his leadership and want an earthly king instead. But the whole time, God continually redeems his people. Time and time again, he chases after them. And so the bookends remind us of this grace. They show us at the beginning that God is full of grace. And we often sing about the, the matchless, infinite grace of God. But the story itself, the, the, the meat on the bones here, the, the in-between the bookends, show us another picture. It shows us the seriousness of sin. It shows us just how personal sin is. It shows us how ugly sin is. It shows us sin as a picture of a broken relationship between a husband and wife. It shows us sin as a picture of adultery, as a picture of a broken covenant. But God faithfully pursues Israel. And so I want us to take these two bookends that we have, and the main idea that we're going to get from these, that we're going to follow as we go through, is that God is endlessly pursuing His people with His grace. 
God is endlessly pursuing his people with his grace. And so we know just from reading over this text this morning that the chief complaint that God has against Israel is her unfaithfulness, her adultery. As Matt put it last week, he called this spiritual adultery. Israel had began to mix the worship of other gods into their worship of God. And God had made clear to his people already that this was sinful, that this was wrong. He tells us in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, yet this is exactly what Israel was doing. They were having other gods in the mix. They were worshiping particularly Baal. And so the sin that, that Israel commits is adultery. But also in this text, we see a little more detail to that. We see kind of two aspects of that sin, uh, or maybe even might call it reasons for that sin, or, or, or sins that cause Israel to go into the sin of adultery. And so those two, or the first one, I guess, is the first primary cause of their adultery, I would say, is that Israel had forgotten her identity. Israel had forgotten her identity. Look at, again, at the beginning of chapter 2. In verse 2, God says, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. See, Israel had forgotten her identity as the bride of God. And then look at, look at verse 13. The end of verse 13, it says that God says that Israel had went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So she went after her lovers and forgot God. So they had, she has lost her identity as the bride of God. See, God made a covenant with Israel in the wilderness. And God alludes to this several times throughout this passage, mentioning the wilderness. And that covenant was very much like a marriage covenant in which God said that I will be your God and you will be my people. And certainly, you know, Israel hasn't literally forgotten that. They have all these reminders in their daily worship and in their lives that, that they are a people of God, but they act as if they are not. Their actions show that they are living differently than what their identity is or what it should be. And notice that God is not even speaking directly to Israel, but to her children. He says, plead with your mother. So what's, what's that about? Why is God speaking to, his, or to her children instead of to Israel directly? I think the best way for us to understand that is to see the idea as the wife or mother as a picture of Israel as a whole, as a nation. But then when he speaks to the children, he's speaking to the individuals of Israel. And so it's a call for the actual people, for the individuals of Israel to, to do something and to turn from their own sin. And then in effect calls change for the, the whole of, a, of Israel, for the nation as a whole. But because Israel has forgotten her identity as the bride of God, and she has committed this adultery against God. And so the first primary cause for her adultery is that she has forgotten her identity as the bride of God. The second primary cause for Israel's adultery is that Israel had forgotten who had blessed them. Not only had they forgotten that, they, that she was the bride of God, but she had forgotten who had blessed them. Look at Hosea 2, verse 5. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And then notice verse 8. God says, And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So one of the reasons that Israel, as the text says, goes after these false gods is because Israel had mistaken 
the blessings that God had given them as coming from this other God. She leaves God because she thinks there's something better somewhere else. Someone else can give me more things, more blessings, and turns away from the blessings that God had given them and instead credits those blessings to Baal. And so because she has forgotten her identity and because she has mistaken these blessings, Israel had turned away from God, had committed this adultery against God. So I want us to ask ourselves for a moment and pause here and ask, are we in danger of doing these two same things in our own lives? Are we in danger of forgetting our identity and are we in danger of of mistaking the blessings that God has given us as something else? Concerning our identity, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, God made the Israelites a new nation. He set them apart, said, You are a holy nation, a holy people, and He made this covenant with them. And likewise, in Christ, God has told us, You are a new creation. I've given you this, this new spirit, my spirit, and it is to be yours, and you are to act accordingly, and to live in that, and to embrace that, and to throw away the old identity, cast it out, the things of the flesh, throw those things away, but put on this new identity, put on Christ. And so, are we living out that identity? Now hear me out. We don't have to live a certain way to gain that identity, but we do live because God has given us that identity. See, God, isn't, God wasn't mad at Israel because they weren't acting like His bride, because they, weren't, because they weren't living up to be good enough to be His bride. He was mad at them because He had told them, you are my bride, you are my people, but they were, weren't acting like it. So we don't have to earn our identity with God like we do have to earn our identities in the world. God gives us identities. God tells us, you are my child, or you are my bride. And then we are to live in light of that identity. And we're called to live out that identity that God has given us. And so what does that have to do, or how does that play into our other identities? Because we certainly have other roles and identities that we assume in our day-to-day life. But, but how do we balance those things and And how do we separate and make sure that that our identity is first and foremost in Christ? Me, for example, I have have many roles. I am a, uh, I think in order of significance, I am a Christian. I am a husband. I am a pastor. um, I'm a son, a brother, an American, an Alabama fan, um, a homeowner, etc. Either one of those things, you know. Those are all parts of my identity. Those are things that I identify with. And that list goes on. There's, there's several things you could add to that. And whenever I have kids, um, I hope that, that list will change. It'll, I'll, I'll, it'll go uh, Christian, um, husband, father, pastor, and so on. So then I'll, I'll squeeze being a father in there between um, husband and, and pastor as, as far as importance. And so you might ask then, what is the difference in these identities, these these other identities that I have, and then my main identity as being in Christ. What's, what's the difference, and how can you tell what's secondary and what's primary? Or what have, how can you tell what we placed as secondary and as primary? I think the way that we do that is we, you start taking things out. So if I were not a pastor, I would still be in Christ. I would still be a human and would have value as a Christian. Uh, if I were not an American I would still certainly have value, and I would certainly still be a Christian, able to worship God, have a relationship with God, and my life would have meaning. 
even if I were not a husband, and I'm extremely thankful that I am a husband to my wife, my life would still have meaning. I would still have value as a Christian and as someone who uh, God has a plan for. And even if I were never to become a father, I would still have an identity in Christ. I would still be someone in Christ. So what you can see is that all these different components of my life, as important as they are, and as much as they may shape me and, and may uh, influence my personality, and as much as I can find value in those things, they are not the thing in which my life most depends on. They are not the thing in which determines who I am. On the contrary, my identity as a Christian, and, and your identity as a Christian, your being in Christ, has to be the most important thing. And it has to influence the other identities. My identity as a Christian ought to influence the way that I treat my wife, the way that I try to be a husband. And because I'm a Christian, I ought to try to, uh, when I have children, to, to lead them spiritually. And because I'm a Christian, I'm an Alabama fan. Just kidding on that one. But, but, you, get, <laughs> but you, get, you get the point there, is that all these other things aren't first. What's first is my identity as a Christian. And so what we have to see is that our, our chief identity has to come from a vertical relationship that we have with God, not the horizontal relationships that we have with other people. And so before all else, you and I, we are, are Christians, and our identity as a Christian has to be uh, the thing that informs the other identities. It has to be chief among the other identities. And what about blessings? Are we making the same mistake that Israel made when it comes to the blessings that God has given us? Uh, James 1.17 tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so every good thing that God has given us comes from God. Every good thing that we have comes from God. And I don't think that we're, we're likely to make the exact same mistake that Israel made. We're not likely to, to, to get something from God and say, that must have been Baal, or, or get something, a blessing, and say, that must have been Buddha. But, but I think there are ways that we can do this. There are ways that we can mistake God's blessings as thinking they came from something else. I think we can often think that these blessings come from ourselves. We can think, man, I worked really hard, and I got that all on my own. Or I, I did this thing, and because of that, I got rewarded. And we can, we can swell up with pride, and we can uh, take credit for the things that, that, in reality, God has given us. And that's something we can do. I think that's a place that we can do this, and where we, can, where we make this mistake of, uh, of, of thinking God's blessing is coming from somewhere else. And, and most times, that's from within our own self. I think it's okay to, to have pride in our work and, and to work hard for the things that we have, but we have to understand that above all, those things come from God. Those good things that we have, they come from God above. You see, Israel had forgotten their chief identity as the bride of God, and they had forgotten that it was God who had blessed them. And ultimately, this led to their spiritual adultery. It led them to forsake the God that they loved and to add to their worship the worship of this other God. And that was Israel's sin. That, that's what we see in chapter 2 as God's chief complaint against Israel, that they had committed this adultery against him. So now I want us to ask, how is it that God pursues Israel through this sin? Because at the beginning I said that's what God is doing. He is pursuing Israel uh, endlessly, and he pursues us in, endlessly. So I want us to ask, 
How is it that God is pursuing Israel through that sin? In what ways is He extending His grace? In what ways is He drawing Israel back to Himself? So the first thing that God does is He exposes their sin. God exposes their sin. Read verse 2 and 3 with me again. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. So in one sense, God is exposing Israel simply just by calling it out here through Isaiah and through this prophet. But in another sense, he's calling it out and exposing the shame of their sin by saying, lest I strip her naked. It says something similar in verse 9 and 10. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were used to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. So by uncovering Israel's sin, God is revealing the shame that they had been hiding. He calls it what it is and makes it clear to them that this is sin. And what they were doing was, was wrong. They were turning from God by doing it. And yet you may be thinking, that sounds harsh to say, lest I stripped her naked or lest I take away uh, her, her cover and show her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And you may think that sounds harsh and doesn't sound like a very loving or graceful thing to do. But it certainly is. It certainly is a way in which God is pursuing Israel with grace because if Israel had continued to go down this path and if they would never saw their sin for what it was, if God never did expose their sin for what it was, they just would have continued down that road and they never would have turned towards God in repentance. See, we have a way of deceiving ourselves when it comes to our sin. We have a way of, of kind of saying this is... Um, this is okay. We have a way of justifying it. We have a way of uh, forgetting it, I guess, and just ignoring it. And sometimes those are genuine blind spots. Sometimes we have cultural and, and, and time-based blind spots where we just don't see something as sinful. But other times our heart is acting deceitfully and we're deceiving ourselves into thinking, this particular thing, it's not so bad. It's not really a sin. But the reality is, is that we need God, regardless if it's a blind spot or regardless if it's some kind of you know, subconscious deception of our heart, we need God to expose that sin. We need God to, to strip our own heart naked and uncover our own lewdness so that we can turn towards Him, so that we can turn in repentance. And it's, that's an expression of God's grace, and it's a way in which He pursues Israel, and it's a way in which He pursues us. And that uncovering, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's as uncomfortable as it sounds. It is it's not fun when God exposes sin in our heart, but it's necessary. And luckily, by the grace of God, it, it doesn't happen all at once. It doesn't just all of a sudden, boom, these are all the sins that, that you are doing. God exposes those sins in our hearts over a lifetime. It's, it's painful, but it's necessary, and it's a picture of His love. And I believe that, that in some cases, the more stubborn we are in a particular sin, the more loudly God has to speak to expose it. You see that to be the case with Israel. They had, they had violently turned away from God and, and turned towards Baal. And because of that, God had speak loudly, and they needed a rude awakening of their sin. So God may not always speak uh, this uh, loudly in our own hearts. The conviction may not always be this extreme, but it always serves the same purpose. And that purpose is to draw us away from that sin and to God, to pull us back to Him.
So the first way that, that God reacts to their sin, the first way that God pursues Israel in their sin is by exposing it. That is, even though it might not sound like it, that is God loving his people and pursuing them. The second way that God does it, that he pursues his people, is through revoking his blessings. God revokes his blessings for Israel. So in addition to exposing their sin, he removes the blessings that he had given them. Israel had forgotten that it was God who had blessed them. They had forgotten that it was God who had given them the things that they had, the wax and the wool and the food and the water. And so God responds to that sin, that misplacement, by removing his blessing altogether. Look at verse 5 and 7, or 5 through 7. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and turn to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. That's somewhat of a tongue twister, like uh, she sells seashells by the seashore. Um, I should have said that ten times fast this morning. But anyways, what we see is that God is removing that blessing that they have misplaced and, and given credit towards Baal. And again, that sounds harsh, but that is God doing them a favor. That is God showing his grace to them. Because if they, again, if they had carried on to think, Baal's the one who's giving me these blessings. Baal's the one who is doing these things. And they'd have been putting their faith in an empty and false God. They'd have been putting their faith in something that, that could never help them or never be, a, be uh, for them what God was. And so God, in a way, says, if you're going to mistake my blessing and give credit to Baal for the things, then, then what I'll do there is simply there won't be any blessing at all. And he says this even more clearly in verses 9 through 13. We won't read all of it just for the sake of, of time, but he says, Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were used to cover her nakedness. And he goes on to talk about all the things that he's going to take away. And so, again, this is ultimately an act of love. This is God loving his people. He, he tears down this idol. He says, If you think these things are coming from, from Baal, then just let me show you that they're not. And he, he tears them down, takes them away. Uh, and this, this also is a warning not to put the blessing itself above God. You know, again, we're, we're not going to make the mistake of saying, you know, I, th- I think Baal gave me this, this blessing. But we can sometimes say, put the blessing above God, and we can, we can worship the blessing more than, more than God himself. I think that's kind of the... Um, the sinfulness of the prosperity gospel is that it puts the blessing that God gives us above the blessing. God becomes just a tool for the things in which we want. And so we can't put the blessing above the one who gives the blessing. And if we do that, I think God is, is gracious to, to take that blessing away from us. God is, is gracious to remove that blessing, and that's what he does for Israel. So the first thing God does, he exposes their sin. The second thing God does is he revokes the blessings that he had given Israel. And, and three, God calls Israel to repentance. God calls Israel to repentance. Look at verse 14 and 15. This is after exposing the sin, after removing the blessing, God says this, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her 
and there I will give her vineyards, and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So after exposing Israel's sin and after removing the blessing, God draws her back to himself. Notice where God takes Israel, where he, where he allures her to, the wilderness. That's, that's where their love first began. That's where God originally made the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. It was in, in the wilderness outside of Egypt. The wilderness is this place where God first made this covenant where he first took his bride. And so imagine a husband who, who desperately wants to, to get his wife to love him again, who desperately wants his wife to come home, and he, he takes her back to the place where they first met and, and shows her, this is, this is where our love began. And then it says that he speaks tenderly to her. All throughout chapter 2, God speaks harshly about Israel, but here he speaks tenderly to his, to his bride again. And by giving the vineyards and he is restoring the blessings that he had previously revoked from Israel. He's, he begins to give back the things that, that he had taken away. And then listen to Israel's response to God's grace. At the very end of that, of that section it says, And there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So Israel responds to that exposure of sin, responds to God's removal of blessing, and to God's call to repentance by turning again to God. And that leads us to the fourth thing, the last thing that God does uh, in pursuit of Israel, and that is God redeems his bride. God redeems his bride. Read verses 16 through 20 again. Again, it's a little bit lengthy, Pastor, but I want you to hear this one more time. It says, And in that day declares the Lord, You will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my bell. For I will remove the names of of the bells from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord." So the result of God's grace, of this outpouring of love, of this constant pursual of Israel is redemption. Israel has been redeemed. The marriage has been renewed. But notice who it is that does the work of redemption. God says, I will remove the names. I will make a covenant. I will abolish I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And then that last result there, and because of what God had done, Israel shall know the Lord. Israel shall know the Lord. So in summary, God's grace overcame Israel's sin. And this is true of, of anyone who is in Christ. Because as much as we hate it, we're not just going to quit sinning just like that. We, we strive to live uh, lives that, that model our Christian faith, and we strive to turn away from sin. But the truth is that we'll, we will continually, until we are made whole again in the new heavens and new earth, we're going to continue in sin. And, our, and that sin is great, but God's mercy and His grace is more. Romans 5, 20 and 21 puts it this way. It says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, 
grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this is certainly no invitation to sin. Rather, it is a picture of how big God's grace is and how much God is chasing us with our grace. Because no matter how big we sin, God's grace is bigger. No matter how fast we run away, God is faster. The next verse keeps us from that temptation, though, of saying, let's just sin more then. Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? So don't make the mistake to think that just because God's grace is infinite and because He is pursuing us with His sin, that that means that that, that sin is inconsequential or that God doesn't care about our sin. Because if we've seen anything from this analogy so far in chapter 2, it's that God is, is hurt by our sin. God hurts as if a man whose wife has left him. And in chapter 3, we see this analogy become a reality for Hosea. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, look there. This is Hosea speaking. The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And then verse 2 shows us Hosea's response. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of lethic of barley. See, Gomer was already his wife. He married her in chapter 1. But in between 1 and, one and 3, she leaves him. She goes back to where she began, leaves him for another man, and he has to go and redeem her again at a price. He has to purchase what was already his. She was his wife, and he goes and he, and he, and he buys her again. And then he says to her in verse 4, something similar to what God says to Israel. You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore belong to another man. So will I also be to you. So I want us to just think about Hosea for a moment. A righteous man who God tells to go and take a wife of whoredom. Either meaning go and marry a prostitute or meaning go take this wife and she's going to leave you. Uh, And he does so immediately. And then imagine her committing adultery. And then imagine God saying, do it again. Go again and take her to be your wife. I might say, no, God, that's, that's too much. I, I get the point. You made your, your point when she left me. I understand Israel has been adulterous towards you. But he says, go and do it again. And, and Hosea doesn't hesitate. He goes immediately. In the very next verse, so I bought her for 15 shekels and, and some barley. And he brings her home to be his wife again. And so if if hearing about how God led Hosea to do this seems harsh, if it makes you cringe, then you get the point. God shows us what our infidelity looks like to Him, what our sin feels like to Him. And we see how ugly it is and how much He hates it and how costly that sin is. See, for Hosea, it cost him some money and, and, and some barley. But for God to redeem us, it cost us His Son, It cost the life of Jesus who lived a perfect life and died in our place so that we could be redeemed. And so don't take the grace of God lightly. Don't take sin lightly. Run from it. Turn from it as quickly as you can. Know that there is grace for when we do sin. But know that we are called to live in the identity that God has given us, the identity of being children of God and being, as a church, the bride of Christ. In a moment, we'll have a hymn of invitation. This is your chance to respond to God's Word. 
If you're not in Christ, then that, that limitless grace doesn't, doesn't apply yet. But there is a call to come to Jesus. And on the basis of His sacrifice at the cross, the basis of Him living a perfect life and dying in place for our sin, there is uh, there's room for us to then come to God through Him and to experience that endless grace and that pursuit of God for His people. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this time that we've had to read your word and to, to dig into it, dear God. I pray that you would uh, let us see in it our own sinfulness, dear God, that we would not miss that uh, ultimately we are Gomer, dear God. We've the one, we're the ones that, that have left you uh, and you've bought us for a price, dear God. And then even so, we continue to sin, dear God. And so we ask that you would uh, draw us near to you and that, that as we're in sin, dear God, that you would begin to to expose that, dear God, and, and to, to draw us back to yourself that, that we may live lives that are more like Christ, dear God, that we would live uh, holy lives, dear God, lives that are, are pleasing to you and glorifying to you, dear God. And I pray that you would help us to uh, expand your kingdom, dear God, that we would be willing to, to share this good news, dear God, the news that, uh, that ultimately that, that we are, are sinful and are lost, dear God, but that you have given us new identities, dear God, and that you have, you have blessed us, dear God, and, and given us a a path to, to you, dear God, in a relationship with you. All I pray in your gracious and holy name. Amen.